Well, last week we studied what is most commonly called the peace offering. And I mentioned last week when dealing with the peace offering that its name is not intuitively indicative of the sort of offering that it is. In other words, just by hearing the title, the peace offering, you don't really have an idea of what the offering is about. By contrast, the sin offering, though we don't know, maybe not, don't know all the details or all the subtleties or nuances of what it is, by contrast, the sin offering is a title which gives us some sense of what the offering is about. If, if I didn't even preach this sermon and I said, what do you think the sin offering is about? You would say, probably, it's an offering that is presented to God when someone sins. Well, you'd be right. That's exactly what it is. And so, its title points us in the right direction. And there are various specific types of sins which serve as specific reasons for offering what is called the sin offering. And these specific types of sins are given to us in two chapters, both Leviticus 4 and Leviticus 5. But we will be looking tonight only at the sin offerings recorded in Leviticus 4. And then God willing, next week we're going to look at Leviticus 5 and look at the rest of the specific types of sin that necessitate the offering of the sin offering. So let's begin with the actual sacrifices. Verses 2 and 3 of Leviticus chapter 4 present us with the circumstances of the first case. If a priest sins unintentionally. Verse 13 presents us with the next case. If the whole congregation sins unintentionally. Verse 22 presents us with the third case. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done. And verse 27 presents us with the fourth case. If any one of the common people sins, what's coming next? Unintentionally. You can see the common thread here. These are sacrifices in Leviticus chapter 4. These are sacrifices for unintentional sins. So if anyone in Israel sinned unintentionally, this offering was to be brought. This sin offering of Leviticus chapter 4. And the instructions are very similar in all four of these cases. The priest, the whole congregation, a non-priestly leader of Israel, or just one of the common people. There is a substitutionary slaughtering of the animal in the place of the sinner. We're very familiar with this concept by now, so I won't belabor the point. Simply know that the animal dies in the place of the sinner, prefiguring the death of Jesus on the cross in the place of the sinner. This sin offering, like any other offering of atonement, recorded for us in the scripture is a substitutionary offering. And as with all the other Old Covenant sacrifices, what happens to the dead animal once slaughtered is important. 
the slaughtering of the animal is not the end of the sacrifice, but in a sense, in, in most cases, it, it is just the beginning. Because various things are then done with the blood and the various parts of the animal. In the first two of the sin offerings of Leviticus 4, which are for the priest and for the whole congregation, blood is sprinkled at the entrance to the most holy place. And some blood is applied to the altar of incense, which you'll remember is in the same area of the tabernacle, right at the entrance to the most holy place. And then the rest of the blood is poured out at the base of the bronze altar of burnt offering that is in the outer court of the tabernacle. In the second two of the sin offerings of Leviticus 4, however, which are for the non-priestly leaders of Israel and the common people of the congregation, no blood is sprinkled in the holy place in that western section of the tabernacle, nor applied to the altar of incense. Instead, some blood is applied to the horns of the bronze altar in the eastern outer court of the burnt offering. Or, sorry, in the eastern outer court where the bronze altar of burnt offering is. And the rest of the blood is poured out at the base of that altar. And just as there's a difference between the first two and the last two sacrifices of chapter 4 with respect to the blood, so there is a difference between the first two and the last two with respect to what happens to the rest of the animal. In the first two, the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver are burnt up on the altar of burnt offering to the Lord in the outer court of the tabernacle. And then the rest of the animal is carried outside the camp to the ash heap, where the ashes removed from the altar at, on a daily basis would be taken, and the rest of the animal is burnt up there. But in the last two of the sacrifices, only the fat is to be burnt up on the bronze altar, and then in Leviticus 6 and verse 26, with respect to the rest of the animal, we read that the priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. So let's consider now, as best as we can, the reason for the differences between the first two and the last two sacrifices, and what the various aspects of these rituals represent beyond the basic concept of substitutionary atonement. Let's look first at the difference between applying the blood in the holy place when a priest or the whole nation sins, and applying the blood merely in the outer court when an individual other than a priest sins. Gordon Wenham comments on this passage and reminds us of the general principle that, quote, sin defiles men, and particularly God's sanctuary, and the proper means of purification is animal blood. If there is no purification, death will follow, end quote. Wenham then goes on to explain with reference to the sin offerings of Leviticus 4 that, quote, the seriousness of pollution depended on the seriousness of the sin, which in turn related to the status of the sinner. 
If a private citizen sinned, his action polluted the sanctuary only to a limited extent. Therefore, the blood of the purification offering was only smeared on the horns of the altar of burnt sacrifice. If, however, the whole nation sinned or the holiest member of the nation, the high priest sinned, this was more serious. And the blood had to be taken inside the tabernacle and sprinkled on the veil and the altar of incense. End quote. So we are taught in Leviticus 4, as we are also taught elsewhere in Scripture, the principle that there are degrees of severity of sin. However, a unique aspect of this principle that we see taught here in Leviticus chapter 4 is that the identity of the sinner can be the reason that a particular sin is considered as being more severe. In other words, sometimes one sin that one person commits is more severe than another sin, a different sin that a different person commits. And so it is the difference in the action, the difference in the sin that accounts for the difference in the severity. But sometimes the sin that one person commits is the same as the sin that another person commits. But in one case it is more severe because of who it is that sinned. Because of the identity and the status of the person that sinned. And we see here in Leviticus chapter 4 that there is greater severity attached to the sins of the spiritual leaders of God's people. And haven't we all seen that play out in various ways throughout the course of our own church experiences? The sin of a leader often has a more severe effect on the church than the sin of another in the church, even when the same sin has been committed. Very often a sin in the pulpit, so to speak, has a greater effect on the church than a sin in the pew, so to speak. It is the difference in the severity of the polluting effect of a sin of a priest or the sin of the congregation as a whole, the people thought of as a whole, which accounts for why the blood had to be applied in the holy place rather than in the outer court in those cases. God's tabernacle was defiled to a greater degree and had to be purified in a more inward place than when it had been, we could say, maybe superficially defiled or more shallowly defiled by merely the sins of a non-spiritual leader of Israel or just a common person among the Israelites. And it is this difference of severity that accounts also for the prescription of the most valuable animals to be offered for the priest and the whole congregation and the less valuable animals for the non-priestly leader and the common Israelite. 
One is more severe, and so there's a more intense purification rite. One is more severe, and so a more valuable and expensive animal is brought. And one is less severe, and so there's a less intense purification rite. And a less valuable animal suffices. Now this distinction between the severity of one person's sin and the severity of another person's sin by virtue of their office and function in the community of faith is latent here in this passage. I hope you can see that from what I've just pointed out. And it's important to observe. But by far, the more obvious and central takeaway from this passage is simply this. There is such a thing as unintentional sins. And we need atonement for these also. I hope what I've just described to you about the difference in severity helps you understand when you read Leviticus 4 why this rite is repeated four times with subtle differences. So that you read the chapter and you understand what's going on in it. But note that the thing that is repeated four times, which doesn't vary, is when so-and-so sins unintentionally. That's what I mean by the more central point, the more obvious point, even if you didn't understand why the difference in animals or why the blood had to be sprinkled in the holy place, you could read Leviticus 4 and understand there is atonement being made here for unintentional sins. I came across an article written by a Desiring God staff member, which is the organization that uh, John Piper is uh, associated with. I think he's the founder, but we're all familiar with Desiring God through Piper. So by and large, a very good, very solid, very biblical organization. But in this particular article, I read a statement which I have some reservations about. The staff member of Desiring God said this, being wrong and being an unrepentant sinner are not the same. Now, depending on how we define terms, I can understand what he means. There is a difference, obviously, on the one hand, knowing you are wrong, knowing that your attitude or beliefs or words or actions are displeasing to God and not caring and being defiant about it and being unrepentant in that sense. Or, on the other hand, not knowing that your attitude or your beliefs or your words or your actions are displeasing to God and inadvertently continuing in them when you would be glad to change them and adjust them if you knew. So in that sense, if that's all that's meant, no problem. I can concede the point. But if this staff member means that we are not actually in sin, per se, by inadvertently holding wrong attitudes or beliefs, or continuing to say words or do things that are displeasing to the Lord, then I cannot concede the point. Leviticus 4 teaches us that there is such a thing as unintentional sins. 
You can mean well. You can do something inadvertently. And it may still be sinful. If someone is sincerely trying to please God, but their attitudes or beliefs or words or actions are inconsistent with God's laws, they are in sin. Even if it's unintentional. Another way of stating this is that we are not always conscious of all our sins. Now, this would be a huge problem if repentance was a meritorious work. In other words, if you could only be saved if you repented thoroughly enough, then it would be a huge problem not to be conscious of all your sins. And this is the way that some people wrongly understand repentance and faith. Even some pastors and some Bible teachers. In their view, which is called neonomianism in theological terms. Perfect obedience to God's law is impossible. And so, as the scripture says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. That's Romans 3. So far, so good. But here's where the neonomians go wrong. They hold that God has essentially lowered His standard in the gospel. Though they, they probably, to be fair, wouldn't state it exactly like that. But that's the implication. Because from their perspective... The good news is that God no longer requires perfect and perpetual obedience to God's law, but is willing to accept repentance and faith as sufficient righteousness instead. And so, repentance and faith become a new law, which is what neo-nomian translates to. Neo being new. And nomos being law. So in neonomianism, the gospel is essentially this. That you can't be saved by works of the law. Because no one can perfectly and perpetually obey God's law. But if you will repent and believe, God will count your repentance and your faith as righteousness. And so, this new law of repentance and faith is easier to keep. Or at least it comes within reach if God helps you by His grace. So, by grace, God helps you repent and have faith. And then that repentance and faith becomes your righteousness before God. Can you see how this turns repentance into a meritorious work. It's something that you do to earn. It's something that you do to merit. Now within this understanding, we would have a huge problem if we were not conscious of all our sins. Because all you have to do is repent. But the problem is, 
If you don't even know all your sins, how can you repent of them all? So neonomians often want to downplay the severity of their unconscious departures from God's law. Well, I wouldn't call it sin per se. Yes, I made a mistake, but God knows my heart. If our righteousness depends on repenting thoroughly enough, then it becomes psychologically difficult to acknowledge just how deep our sin runs. Just how pervasive it continues to be in our hearts and in our attitudes and in our words and in our actions, even after regeneration. If, if my repentance is my righteousness, then it becomes very psychologically difficult for me to acknowledge that there's sin that I'm not even aware of, which I really ought to be repenting of, but I'm not. And so the tendency becomes to downplay what we really and truly should call sin and call it something else. By way of contrast, our confession of faith adopts a robust definition of sin, teaching that even our remaining corruption itself, even if we don't act on it, is sin. Just its very presence, the very, the very presence of a corrupt aspect of your nature is sin. Even if you rule over it and don't act on it. Moreover, the first motions, as our confession puts it, of that remaining corruption, even the slightest impulse to sin, our confession says, is truly and properly sin. Our confession teaches also that all the actions and words that flow from your remaining corruption are sin. And more to the point, as we come to this text tonight, our confession teaches that the same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables. The first four containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty to man. By implication then, a breach of God's commandments is sin. If God's law is a perfect rule of righteousness. Whether you meant to or not, if you breached one of God's commandments, you sinned. Leviticus 4 endorses this view of sin, just how deep it runs. Leviticus 4 teaches us that even if you meant well, but didn't conform to God's law and unconsciously sinned, unintentionally sinned, you still sinned. In other words, there is an objectivity to sin and an objectivity to holiness 
So your conscience might be clear about a particular thing, but you still might be guilty. Paul says something like this in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. Quote, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. End quote. Therefore, consider this. If it is possible to be blind to our own sin, and therefore unable to repent of it, then you're in big trouble if you have to exhaustively repent of everything in order to be saved. If it is possible to have a clear conscience but still be guilty in God's eyes, then you're in big trouble if you have to exhaustively repent of everything in order to be saved. Neonomianism is just another form of legalism. Salvation by works. You're not saved by keeping God's Ten Commandments well enough. And we would all recognize that as legalism if someone taught the opposite. But listen here, you're not saved by repenting well enough either. Or by having a steady enough and strong enough faith. All that does is replace one law with another, but it still tells you you're saved by the works of the law. All it does is replace the old law with a new law. Now, of course, repentance and faith are things that you ought to do and will do in response to God's grace if it is the case that you have actually received God's grace. If you have been born again and justified by God's grace on the basis of Christ's righteousness and the propitiation that Christ made for your sin, then out of gratitude, out of a desire to glorify God, and out of a right sense of obligation toward God, among many other motivations, you will continually endeavor to repent and believe day by day. Just as if you've really been saved, you're going to make every effort to obey all the rest of God's commandments. Repentance and faith, just like obedience to God's commands, are things that saved people do. But none of these, not the keeping of any other of God's commandments, nor the keeping of God's commandments to believe and repent, none of these things are the basis of our justifying righteousness. So, an unwillingness to repent and to believe on an ongoing basis or an unwillingness to obey any other of God's commandments 
is evidence against the claim that you have actually received grace. But, repenting and believing, or obeying any other of God's commandments, is not the basis of your justifying righteousness. You see how it's a subtle difference, but it's a huge difference. Because, on the one hand, your righteousness comes to you from outside yourself. From Christ Jesus. But on the other hand, your righteousness comes from your own performance. Whether it be the keeping of the Ten Commandments or a good enough repentance of faith. So it's a subtle difference, but it's a huge difference. In fact, it's the difference between two religions. Even though it's the same language of grace, faith, repent, believe, obey. Jesus. The meanings are changed enough that you have two totally different religions. A works religion and a grace religion. We are convinced from Scripture here at CRBC that neither your repentance and faith nor your obedience to any other command earns or merits your salvation for you. We are saved on the basis of Christ's work alone. Christ's law-keeping. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. Why was He put under the law? To redeem those who were under the law. We are saved on the basis of Christ's law-keeping for us. And on the basis of Christ's substitutionary death. And listen here. Jesus died not only for your sins that you know about. Not only for the sins that you are conscious of. But for the sins that you don't know about yet. And the sins that you are unconscious of. Jesus died not only for your intentional sins. But for your unintentional sins. This is the right and proper inference to draw from Leviticus chapter 4. In the Old Testament, the animals slain in the place of the sinner who deserves to die always represent and prefigure Christ and Christ alone. The Savior who came for us not only because we commit so many sins that we are aware of, but also because our sin runs so deep and is so pervasive in our lives even after we are regenerated that we could not possibly repent of all of our sins. In fact, many of them we're not even conscious of. Sometimes we're just mixed up and we're wrong. But we're still sinning. Because we're misguided about the nature of what God expects from us. So we're wrong, but we're also contra the desiring God staff writer, unrepentantly sinning. Because if we're persisting in something wrong, 
We haven't repented of it, have we? And so in that sense, we're wrong and we're unrepentantly sinning. Maybe we mean well and we're not being defiant. Right? So there's a difference in, in, in that sense. But being wrong and continuing in a misguided path that's contrary to God's commandments is still sinful. Even if you mean well. And even if you're only unintentionally sinning. Jesus came because we don't even see all of our sin. Much less repent of all of our sin. And so I've, I've said it before and shocked some people when I did. But I'm, I know what, I already know I'm going to die in unrepentant sin. And look, let me tell you, I already know you're going to die in unrepentant sin. Because we're not even aware of all of our sin. And as we learn more about what God expects of us, we often see, wow, I've been doing the wrong thing all this time. I've been committing a sin I shouldn't have been committing. Or I've been omitting a duty that I should not have been omitting. You cannot possibly repent of all sin by the end of your life. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We make God a liar. As much as we can, we ought to repent of all sin. Not to do so is actually a mark of an unbeliever. And so I'm not saying that I don't care about repenting of sin. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't care about not repenting of sin either. But just being realistic, as Leviticus 4 teaches us, there is such a thing as unintentional sins. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, you may not be aware of anything against yourself, but you are not thereby acquitted. In Psalm 19, the psalmist asked, who can discern his errors? The implicit answer to that rhetorical question is, no one. So Jesus came not only to atone for all of the sins that you're aware of, that you're conscious of, but even all of the sins that you're not aware of and not conscious of. And when we understand this, it becomes much easier psychologically to admit just how bad we are. Because if my salvation depends on the thoroughness of my repentance, it's hard for me to say just how bad I am and how much there is yet for me to repent of. But when we realize that Jesus came for that which we have not even repented of yet, it becomes much easier psychologically to acknowledge just how much sin remains in us. Just how sinful our attitudes, thoughts, words, and actions so often are. It's much easier to hear someone bring something to our consciousness 
and acknowledge, you're right about that. I have been in unintentional sin. If we believe that the thoroughness of our repentance is what saves us, it's hard for us to acknowledge I've been in unintentional sin all this time. But if we know that Jesus came for that, it's much easier to say, you're right, I see now that I've been in unintentional sin. And when someone becomes aware of it, as Leviticus 4 teaches us, there's a sacrifice for that. When we become aware of it, Wow, I've been in unintentional sin. I see now sin in myself that I've been blind to. When we realize there's a sacrifice for that, it becomes a lot easier psychologically to say, Wow, yeah, I see that now. I was in unintentional sin. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. I'm going straight to the cross now, to that sacrifice. Not only for my conscious and intentional sins, but also my unconscious and unintentional sins. Thank God for the provision of a substitute to atone for our unintentional sins. Let us not deny that we have sins, each and every one of us, that we haven't yet repented of. But let us instead trust in Christ Jesus and His work on the cross as sufficient atonement for those sins too.